Hello and welcome to the Deathcast. I'm your host, best-selling author Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take a look at another true crime case. This week we are staying north of the border in Canada. We're going to be looking at the life and crimes of Russell Williams. Before we get into the case proper, however, I have the normal show notes. If you would like to follow me on social media, just search for Ian Totten Author or The Death Cast. You can find me on most social media sites. If you would like to sign up for the show's mailing list, just go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com and click on the sign up button. While there, please consider making a donation to the show to help offset the costs of production. No amount is too small, and of course, no amount is too large. If you enjoy the show and want to let others know about it, there's a couple of ways you can do that. First and foremost, you can go to wherever it is you find your favorite podcasts, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. Secondly, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash DC Patreon for as little as $2 a month. You can get access to exclusive content as well as older episodes that are no longer in the show feed. And lastly, if you are interested in finding any of my novels, you can find them on most retail websites. Just search for Ian Totten. That's T-O-T-T-E-N. I've had a lot of people ask me which book out of the ones that I've written I would suggest. I'm going to throw it out there. I think it's the best thing I've ever done, and that is The Throwaway Girls of Olympia. It's my most reviewed novel. It has been seen on CBS television in Nevada, and I just think it is the best of the batch. All right, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back, relax. I've got my coffee. I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. Before we begin, and just going to put it out there, I'm using a lot of different sources from Canada. As I stated in the last two episodes concerning the Ant Hill Kids, it's very difficult to get access to court records from Canada. So a lot of what I'm going to be covering here is coming from newspaper articles, and online archives concerning Russell Williams. Our story really begins in 2007 in the village of Tweed, which is in Ontario, roughly 33 miles from Trenton, Ontario. Trenton, Ontario is the site of a major military installation, the Trenton Canadian Forces Base, which is about 103 miles east of Toronto. So to give you an idea of this area we're talking about, it's not very populated. The area of Trenton is actually an unincorporated community with the airbase serving really as the main hub of activity. So on this night in question, 
September 8th into the morning of the 9th, 2007, someone broke into a cottage located on Cozy Cove Lane. And as I understand it, these cottages, which, as I understand it, served as vacation residents for some and year-round residents for others, were fairly upper-class. An individual breaks into one of these homes when the family that dwelled within was not there. And when the family returns to the house later, they discover that someone had broken in. But more than that, someone had taken intimate items from one of the young girls who lived in the house. I'm talking about bras and panties, that type of stuff. From what I could find, this particular family did not contact the police regarding this break-in and the items being stolen. And over the next couple of months, other families were burgled in a similar fashion. Sometimes the perpetrator would go in through an unlocked door. At other points, he would cut out the screens on a window in order to force the window open. In other cases, doors were picked and then forced open so that the perpetrator could go inside and do whatever he was doing. Some cases were reported to police, although that number was fairly small. As I've stated, most of the time individuals did not realize things were even missing. On the cases that were reported to the police, however, they really didn't have a whole lot to go on. This is a kind of isolated community, this Tweed. And it was a fairly upscale community. Police really didn't think that they had anybody in the area who could be perpetrating these crimes, nor did they could they find any kind of a motive. Eventually, the crimes would spread out from Tweed and include another nearby village by the name of Belleville. Like those in Tweed, these crimes were underreported, and it wasn't until 2008 that police anywhere in Ottawa began to be informed that these crimes were taking place, and that was because at least 25 similar break-ins took place in the town of Orleans. The people in Orleans did, in fact, contact police. At least 18 of these 25 known burglaries were reported to the police, and the police took it serious enough that they began posting undercover officers in vehicles in an attempt to find out who was doing this. Most notably, these officers were posted on Wilkie Drive, where the majority of the crimes are known to have taken place. Unfortunately, though, no perpetrators were encountered. However, police noted a change as these crimes in Orleans continued. It seemed that the perpetrator was getting both more aggressive and bolder. 
in one home a pretty disturbing message was left on a computer screen while in another semen was discovered on a woman's photograph. Detective Sergeant Jim Van Allen, who was a criminal profiler for the Ontario Provincial Police, did a assessment of these crimes and stated that it was his belief that this individual would eventually escalate his crimes from simple breaking and entering when someone wasn't home into actual hands-on sexual assault. Detective Sergeant Van Allen's profile proved to be correct when, in September of 2009, in the village of Tweed, again on Cozy Cove Lane, there were two almost back-to-back -back sexual assaults. On the evening of the 16th into the early morning hours of the 17th, a perpetrator broke into a cabin on Cozy Cove Lane where a woman whose name has been protective due to a publication ban within Canada awoke to find someone inside of her bedroom. This individual, a male, proceeded to tie the woman up and sexually assault her before being forced to pose for nude photographs. Obviously, this first woman contacts the police. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot of information to go on. And it wasn't until the second assault took place on September 30th that the police really sprang into the action. On the 30th, Laura Massacote was awoken in her bedroom by a male perpetrator who proceeded to carry out a very similar type of assault. She was bound, blindfolded, sexually assaulted, and then forced to pose for nude photography before the perpetrator stole some of her undergarments and fled the scene. Now, when this attack happened and Lori contacted the police, the police decided to go forward and let the public know that, hey, we've had two sexual assaults in the course of two weeks public needs to be on the lookout out for this and to take appropriate precautions. The police took the extra effort of actually going door to door within Tweed looking for information on this individual whom they dubbed as the Tweed Creeper. So we have here a perpetrator who has escalated his crimes over the course of roughly two years from breaking and entering and stealing women's undergarments to full-on sexual assaults. At some point, this individual breaks into a home at 252 Raglan Street, Brighton, parking not far from the home in a wooded area and breaking into a the basement through a window. 
the woman who lived in this house, Corporal Marie France Camus, came home on this date and discovered that someone had been through her underwear drawer. Initially, she suspected her boyfriend of doing this, although the boyfriend vehemently denied having gone into the house and messed with her underwear. So on November 25th of 2009, just, just about roughly two months after these sexual assaults in Tweed, Corporal Kamu comes home and is going about her nightly routine, unaware that the perpetrator who had broken in not long beforehand was in fact inside her basement, hiding near the furnace. The perpetrator was waiting for the woman to go to bed. Unfortunately, she did not. In fact, she went in search of one of her cats who was in the basement staring at this individual who shouldn't have been there. And it's at this point that our perpetrator escalates his crimes from sexual assaults to something more. You have to imagine that this young woman sees this person in her basement wearing a mask, freaks out, and a fight ensues, at which time Kamu is struck in the head multiple times with a hard object, which would later be found to have been a red flashlight. I'm going to read part of an article from the Durham Region newspaper written by Ashawa this week. The struggle moved across the basement towards a duffel bag. Corporal Kamu fell backwards on the floor while she was being chased. The images presented in court show bloodstains on the floor. The pattern is consistent with blood-soaked hair, court was told. Footprints were also seen in blood. More images show Corporal Kamu's injured wrists from the restraint Colonel Williams used during the crime. He restrained Corporal Kamu with clothing tied to a jack post in the basement. A metal pin protruded from the jack post and left a mark on Corporal Kamu. Colonel Williams took two images showing her bound to the post at 12.29 a.m. on November 25th with only a shawl covering about her body. He placed a sheet over the closed blinds in her bedroom. He used kitchen knives to hold that sheet in place. He removed the night lights from the living room and spare bedroom, leaving them on the floor. Having to, taken these steps to ensure his safety, Colonel Williams returned to the basement area, said Crown Attorney Morrison. There is blood visible on the floor and walls in the evidence photos. There is also an obvious dent in the drywall at the base of the stairs. A sign of struggle, added Mr. Morrison. Corporal Kamu ended up unconscious halfway up the staircase. Colonel Williams took four photos of the naked woman. The photos are taken at different angles. The duct tape he had used to cover her mouth and face area had been removed. Over the next two hours, he sexually assaulted and raped her. So that is from really what they was presented in court, but there was a lot more brutality to this crime. It's been said in various sources that 
the perpetrator, Williams, in fact, tortured Marie-France Camus, forcing her to live out his sexual fantasies and beating her whenever she resisted. More than that, though, he didn't just take photographs. He videotaped the majority of this assault for later gratification. And after having done all of this, Williams then wraps Camus' head in duct tape in an order to asphyxiate her before throwing the duvet cover over her body and leaving her in the bedroom. After this, he flees the house, most probably through the same area that he had come in through, that being the basement window, and escapes into the night. Eventually, police are asked to do a welfare check on this home, as Kamu had not made contact with any of her friends and family, including her boyfriend, nor had she shown up for work. So eventually, the police go to this house, and they do a welfare check. They get gain access to the home that Kamu lived in, and they discover her body in the upstairs bedroom. By this point, over 30 hours had passed since she had been murdered. And word quickly spreads throughout the community that police found this young woman dead inside of her home. Obviously, friends and family are notified, as is her command. The base in Trenton, which was overseen by a Colonel Russell Williams. Williams sends his condolences to the family, and I'm sure they were happy to get such a thing from the commanding officer of this base, and then things go on as normal. It's not known if following Camus' murder, whether or not Williams went and did any of his extracurricular activities, as it were. It's highly doubtful that he did as Individuals such as this who are sexually motivated oftentimes need a cooling off period and it's very likely that Williams falls into this category, especially when you see how quickly he escalated his crimes from sexual assaults to sexual assaults and murders. Again, there's really only a two-month span in between the rapes and his first murder. The police immediately start canvassing the area trying to find any evidence that they can in order to bring the perpetrator of this heinous crime to justice. More likely than not, there was DNA evidence at the scene, although I haven't seen anything to indicate that the fact that there was a sexual assault, most likely there was some form of evidence there from the perpetrator, this Russell Williams. But eventually, the case goes cold, with Kamu's family pleading with, you know, 
the public to offer any assistance that they can. On December 4th of 2009, Marie France Commune is buried at the National Cemetery in Ottawa. Unfortunately, Commu's case goes cold. Police don't have a lot of information to go on. And the killer, this Russell Williams, again, he's cooling off. He's kind of driving around doing his normal creeping activities, looking into windows, trying to find, you know, his next victim. And that brings him to back to the city of Belleville, which is near Lake Ontario, has a population of roughly 51,000 people. He finds a house near Ontario Highway 37. On January 27th, Williams is driving around and he notices a house and inside of this house is a 27-year-old woman by the name of Jessica Elizabeth Lloyd. Lloyd is exercising on her treadmill. So, Williams leaves and decides to come back later, which he does, breaking into her house and ensuring that the young woman lives alone before leaving. That night, which is now the 28th of January, Williams returns to Lloyd's home and parks in a field out behind her house. When Lloyd returns home, it's known that she texted a friend before going to bed, at which point Russell Williams breaks into her home and enters her bedroom. He wakes Lloyd up before bashing her in the head. He then proceeds to tie Jessica Lloyd up as she begs and pleads for her life and for him to leave her be. Williams is obviously not having any of it. He continues to beat the young woman as he proceeds to sexually assault her. It's known that around 2 a.m. he videotapes himself raping Lloyd. After this assault, which is estimated to have lasted for roughly three hours, Williams forces Lloyd from her home and leads her back to his truck, at which point he drives off into the night. So now the following day, Friends and family of Jessica Lloyd haven't heard from her. She doesn't show up to work, and they become concerned. Again, they contact police asking for them to do a welfare check. Police are reluctant at first, but they press on the issue saying, look, this is really out of character for her to do this kind of thing. Would you please go and check on Jessica, and the police do, at which point they find evidence of the sexual assault in her bedroom and other evidence that the house has been broken into. The police noticed a couple of things while they were investigating the scene, that there were tire tracks, which seemed to be very unique, but also they found two sets of footprints outside of the home, one larger 
and another smaller set next to them, but they kept this information back from the public. On January 30th, the police release a statement asking for the public's help in finding out what has happened to Jessica Lloyd, with Deputy Chief Paul Vandegraaff stating, We're treating this suspiciously at this time and doing everything we possibly can from every angle here at the Belleville Police Service to return her home safely. While this statement is being given, the police are out in full force. They're combing the area around Highway 37 and Harmony Road looking for any evidence that might lead them to finding Jessica Lloyd. The next day, on January 31st, they escalate these efforts by launching helicopters to try and survey the area. It's more likely than not that by this point, police knew that they were going to be looking for a body. Although, to the families and in the media, they're still trying to keep up a, you know, hopeful outlook on things. The police in Bellevue were in constant contact with the Ontario Provincial Police Department, and it was through this contact that the sexual assaults in Tweed, as well as Marie French Camus' murder, were all tangentially linked together. So now the police are, you know, they're certain that it's more likely than not this same individual and they're desperate to try and find Jessica Lloyd because up until this point the perpetrator hasn't removed any of the victims from the home. The police reach out to the public again and ask them to stop posting you know various tips they might have on Facebook and instead to contact them. And one tip that comes in from this is that numerous individuals report having seen a silver-colored SUV parked in a field near Lloyd's house on the night it's thought that she disappeared. Armed with this evidence and the tire tracks that the police have found, they start narrowing down what type of vehicle this could be. And they get a fairly short list of vehicles, one of which is a Nissan Pathfinder. On February 4th, police set up roadside checkpoints along Highway 37 in an effort to try and, on the evening of February 4th, Officers from the Ontario Provincial Police Department set up a road check, ostensibly looking for drunk drivers. This was along Highway 37. What in reality they were doing, though, was they were comparing the tires of vehicles that were driving through this checkpoint, as well as questioning the occupants of those drivers attempting to glean any information that they could as to Jessica's disappearance and possible whereabouts. When they came upon Russell Williams' vehicle, one of the officers immediately noticed that the tire treads on the SUV 
matched those that had been found near Lloyd's house. And ultimately, this would lead to William's undoing. As it's been stated, normally he drove his BMW, but for whatever reason on this day, he decided to drive his Pathfinder. Police immediately mark Russell Williams as being a suspect, and they take the extraordinary step of actually placing him under police surveillance. Now, one thing Williams had told the officers when he was stopped at this checkpoint was that he was in a hurry because he had a sick child. However, upon looking into Williams, they discovered that while he was married, the ch couple were childless. So on February 7th, a detective sergeant named Jim Smith contacted Russell Williams and asked him to come to headquarters as they had some loose ends they needed to tie up. And it was at this point that police confronted Williams with their various questions and suspicions regarding his activities on the night of Jessica's disappearance, as well as the fact that he did not have any children, had lied to officers, and had a vehicle that suspiciously matched one that had been seen near Jessica's home. Unbeknownst to Russell Williams, as he's being interviewed by the police, other officers who had been able to obtain search warrants descended on Williams' various properties, namely his cabin in Tweed and the home he shared with his wife in Ottawa. And it's been reported that his wife was stunned when officers showed up at the house with the search warrants, and she kind of stood numbly by as they began to go through the couple's possessions. Williams was unaware of all of this, as I stated. He was also unaware that every time this Officer Smith left the room during his questioning, he was actually going and getting updates about what was being found at Williams' homes. And I was able to find roughly two hours of Williams' interrogation, and I'm going to play some of that for you here now. I want you to be aware that the portion I am going to be playing for you is actually when he's describing the murders of Marie French Comu and Jessica Lloyd. What do you want to talk about? Thursday. So I got into the house, look around. 
find her if she's going to have those clothes on too. Yeah. All right. Um, okay. Uh, Marie, France, uh, come on. during that clip that he's really downplaying how horrific the attacks actually were. And that's not unheard of for individuals like Russell Williams. They don't want to share the secrets of what actually took place, nor do they want to give up that information because it's extremely personal to them in their minds they kind of own these last moments of an individual's life and to do that is to give away the power that they feel over their victims but they're also trying to paint themselves in a more humanistic light than reality would dictate that they should be it's an effort you know, to kind of downplay the severity of their crimes. So, who is Russell Williams? David Russell Williams, known to friends as Russ, was born March 7th, 1963 in Bromsgrove, England, to Christine Noni and Cedric David Williams. Cedric Williams was a metallurgist, and eventually he t 
took his family and they emigrated to the Chalk River area of Ontario where he got a job working at Chalk River Laboratories, which was a nuclear research laboratory. When Russell was six years old, his parents got divorced, and his mother eventually ended up remarrying a man by the name of Dr. Jerry Savka. Now, the Savka family were very close friends with the Williamses, and it's been said that the families prior to the divorce spent so much time together that young Russell kind of looked at Jerry almost as a father figure. When his mother, Noni, ended up marrying Jerry Savka, young Russell took the man's last name as his own. The family ended up relocating to Scarborough, Ontario, which is kind of a bedroom community to Toronto. Williams has been described as a well-mannered, quiet child who was extremely good at the piano, although he was completely out of his depth when it came to matters of the opposite sex. Beyond that, though, it seems as though Russell had a fairly idyllic childhood. You know, he's got a successful doctor for a stepfather, a father who is a scientist, He's got the paper route, all of that type of thing. In 1979, his stepfather and mother went to South Korea for a research project that Savka was overseeing. Well, young Russell was left behind as a boarding student. The Upper Canada College, it should be noted that the Upper Canada College is an extremely selective institution, and really they only go for the cream of the crop, which should give you some idea of Russell's level of intelligence, that he was even selected to partake in this school and to stay there full-time while his parents were overseas. During his final year at the boarding house, Russell was looked at so favorably, but he was actually selected as the prefect of the boarding house, which kind of means the head student in charge. After graduating, he enrolled as an economic and political sciences student at the University of Toronto Scarborough, where he eventually graduated in 1986. It's been noted that during his time at the University of Toronto Scarborough, Williams would go to great lengths to prank his classmates, going so far as to pick locks to gain access to closed dorm rooms and waiting for hours on end for the individual to arrive so that he could jump out and surprise them. Williams himself has stated that he became fascinated with women's underwear in his early 20s, which would put it around the time that he was attending college. So it's very possible that during these pranks that he was playing on his friends, he was going through female acquaintances' undergarments and that 
he found the sexual attraction to them, which, as we are well aware, would later escalate. Williams was seen as a model student, and when he joined the Canadian Air Force in 1987, he was very quickly singled out as a future top echelon officer. So, he wasn't just some schlub off the street that decided he wanted to go into the military. Russell wanted to make a career out of it, and he set his sights high. By 1990, he was flying for the Air Force, being posted to the 3rd Canadian Flying Forces Training School in Portage La Prairie, Manitoba, where he served as an instructor. On January 1st of 1991, Russell Williams was promoted to captain. Not long after this, he met Mary Elizabeth Harriman, who was at that point an associate director of the Heart and Stroke Foundation of Canada. They married on June 1st of 1991. On his official biography on the Canadian Forces website, it was noted that both of the Williamses were avid golfers, while Russell was noted as being a keen photographer, fisherman, and runner. In 1992, he was posted to the Combat Support Squadron based at Canadian Forces Base Shearwater in Nova Scotia. By 1994, he had been moved to the 412th Transport Squadron in Ottawa, which he began transporting high-level VIPs. This includes members of the Canadian government as well as individuals such as Queen Elizabeth of England. Williams was looked at as an excellent pilot and a quote-unquote shining bright star of the military. He continued to move up the ranks within the Canadian forces, and in 2009 he was made a colonel. On July 15th of 2009, he was made the wing commander at Canadian Force Base Trenton. And I think it's fairly interesting that as he was really gaining power within the military and becoming, you know, a base CO, is when his crimes began... Again, we know he started 2007, 2008, somewhere in that time period, which is really when he starts being given these really high-ranking command posts. And if you look into serial killers and sexual predators, oftentimes you'll find that as the stresses of life escalate around them, that is when their criminal conduct begins, and as these stresses grow, so too does their activities, and oftentimes, especially in the case of a serial killer, as life stresses get heavier and heavier, 
they escalate their criminal activities, which is exactly what is happening here with Russell Williams. He's not listed as a serial killer, but given the nature of the crimes and how he was operating, it's more likely than not. Had he not been discovered, he would have continued on in the fashion that he was racking up more victims. And apparently his wife had no idea of the things that he was getting involved with. During the search of Williams' properties, officers found his camera, a duffel bag which contained a black skull cap, a manual for lock picking, along with boxes and pillowcases stuffed full with underwear and lingerie. These would turn out to have belonged to his numerous victims. They also discovered two hard drives inside a ceiling panel in the Ottawa home basement that was basically a chronological record of all of Williams' crimes. They found video clips and almost 3,000 photographs on these hard drives depicting his first two sexual assaults and then the two murders. On February 8th, Williams was charged with murder, sexual assault, and forcible confinement. Eventually, he's going to be charged with numerous other crimes. In April of 2010, while in confinement, guards discovered Williams attempting to take his own life with a cardboard toilet paper tube, which he had shoved down his throat. This led to Williams being placed under a 24-hour suicide watch. Williams, knowing that he was caught ends up pleading guilty to all charges. On October 22, 2010, Williams ends up being convicted to two life sentences without the possibility of parole for 25 years, which means he's going to have to spend 25 years in prison before he's even considered for parole. Russell Williams would be discharged from the Canadian forces, which all, with all of his uniforms and various awards being destroyed while his wife would go on to divorce him. Russell Williams and his wife would end up being sued by the two surviving victims of his sexual assaults, and in 2014, these lawsuits would be settled out of court for undisclosed sums. While Lori Miscotti would end up suing both of the Williamses as well as the Ontario Provincial Police Force, the OPP would end up settling out of court with her. Well, it appears that her lawsuit against the Williamses is still under review. Currently, Russell Williams is serving his sentence at the Maximum Security Prison at Port Cartier in Quebec, where, from reports I have read, he is considered a model 
prisoner. One thing that you don't see very often, and that this might be because these crimes took place in Canada, Russell Williams was really a sexual sadist. He seems to have derived pleasure from his victim's terror and agony. And oftentimes with individuals such as this, there is some key factor in their upbringing that leads them to this point in their life. Unfortunately, it does not seem as though Williams had any of these factors going on with him. Although, based on his inability to speak with the fairer sex, I suspect that when he was in college and was pulling these pranks on friends, as I already stated, he discovered that he liked this level of control and secrecy and that this fed into his sexual fantasies, which he probably carried with him for the next 25 years, give or take, until the stress of life became too much and he had to act upon them. It was, it was the only way that he could think of to relieve the stress that he was dealing with. You have to remember that during this period of time, the war on terror was in full tilt still, and bodies were being shipped in from Afghanistan on an almost continuous basis. Couple that with all of the other responsibilities of a commanding officer. While it's horrific that he went this way, it, given his character and his nature, it's, if you'll excuse the term, understandable why he went the way that he did during that period of time. It doesn't appear as though prior to this, the stress from life had gotten to him, and it isn't until he's really high up within the chain of command within the Canadian forces that it becomes too much and he has to seek that outside release. So, there you have the story of Colonel Russell Williams. If you'd like to find out more about him, I'm going to suggest the book Camouflaged Killer by David A. Gibb. Again, if you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a five-star review wherever it is that you find your favorite podcasts. Like and share the show on social media. And go to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon. Come a patron of the show. I have other cases that I am working on which will be going up exclusively on that feed. Until next time, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Stay morbid.